0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Book Network's African American Studies. I am your host, Katrina Anderson, and today I am joined by Dr. Felicity Turner, author of Proving Pregnancy, Gender Law, and Medical Knowledge in the 19th Century United States. Professor Turner is Associate Professor, Professor of History and Honors Program Coordinator at Georgia Southern University. Thank you for joining me today, Professor Turner.
2: And thank you very much for having me, Katrina. I'm very happy to be here.
1: I would like to discuss your wonderful new book, Proving Pregnancy. So can you tell us a little bit about the book? Um, sure.
2: In its simplest form, it's a history of knowledge. Uh, and more specifically, it's a history of sort of legal, medical, social, and cultural understandings um, of and ideas about, as the title suggests, pregnancy and childbirth, Uh, and of the female body in the 19th century United States. And beyond that, the book identifies who possessed uh, that knowledge of female bodies and how that ownership or possession, for lack of a better word, changed over the course of the 19th century. And so I trace the, the shift that happens in the possession of knowledge about the female body over the course of the 19th century. And the book traces how that transformation happened. So it traces the shift, it traces how it happened. And then most importantly, it traces the significance of that shift.
1: Now, why did you select law and pregnancy as your topic? And how did you become interested in this topic?
2: Well, of course, given the current moment (laughs) um, in the United States, it would seem a sort of very apropos topic, uh, but I started working on this a long time ago uh, and didn't necessarily know about the sort of current circumstances that would uh, happen in 2022, uh, 2023. Uh, I actually came to this subject matter uh, through a novel Uh, Namely, Toni Morrison's 1987 Beloved. I grew up in Australia and I attended college there. And as an undergraduate, I enrolled in some classes on women's literature. And at that time, I didn't identify as a feminist. uh, Far from it. I, I just wanted to read more books that were written by women. And the literature major was really stayed, as were a lot of of the (laughs) literature professors. Uh, But there were some dynamo female professors who introduced me to some really incredible books written by women that I'd never heard of. And one of them was Toni Morrison's um, Beloved. And you have to understand that growing up in Australia, at that point in time, I had done history classes at school, of course, but certainly not U.S. history. We didn't learn anything about U.S. history. It was all British history, Australian history, European history, but American history, uh, not at all. And in fact, everything I knew about America was pretty much from the TV. Um, And so I think there was an extraordinary power in a novelist who could reach out from who could reach out from the United States to this incredibly naive sort of 20-year-old um, that was about the age I was then and sort of speak to me uh, with this 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 story um, and sort of sh- shape, shape my perceptions of the world or reshape my perceptions of the world and kind of inspire me to go on this journey to the United States and sort of pursue further questions uh, related to this topic. And so, you know, when I originally began researching this topic uh, when I did make it to the United States uh, you know the question that I was looking at in the archives was to what extent was the history of Margaret Ghana upon which Tony Morrison's beloved uh, is based um, you know to which ex- to what extent was that an isolated one um, how many others were there like her and so I went looking uh, initially for you know, legal l- legal narratives or legal histories or legal cases of infanticide involving enslaved people. Uh, and that's not the question I really ended up answering, but that's where I started.
1: Okay. And the topic, so um beloved, it inspired your interest in infants infanticide with Margaret Garner's case. Now as you're doing for proving pregnancy, what sources are you using in your analysis?
2: Um, So the sources I use, uh, because as I mentioned, uh, are effectively legal cases, but it's not quite legal cases. Uh, What I actually use are inquests. So they're a very specific type of legal source. And these are legal records that document the cause of death or investigate the cause of death. And I focus on inquests involving the deaths, the deaths of newborn infants as these were cases where communities suspected infanticide. Investigations into infanticide were unusual though, because they subjected the bodies of live women to discussion and examination. And if you think about this, that's odd because in an inquest, the focus should usually be the dead body, not the live one. But as the title suggests, the inquest was the site where communities proved pregnancy. And so they discussed the signs that indicated uh, pregnancy and childbirth. And so the kind of questions they asked, had the woman suspected of being pregnant, been larger in recent months? Was she just wearing more clothes? You know? <laughs> those, are the, those are the kind of things Were there signs of blood in the room where they suspected she'd given birth Did it smell like blood? Did it taste like blood? All of those kind of things might gross us out now, but those were the questions that they asked and that they talked about in these inquests. And so these are incredibly rich sources. And so those are the sources that I ended up using. Uh, And in large part, because not every investigation into a suspected case of infanticide also made it to trial. So um, so I, I used a lot of inquests where it was kind of resolved at the inquest stage and didn't move beyond that as well.
1: Now you chose to omit visual sources, um, and you state that in your book. Can you tell the readers why you chose not to use visual sources?
2: Uh, sure. So um, other than sort of, that, there was sort of two images I used. I... By and large, made a conscious choice to a bit omit visual sources because I wanted readers to focus on how nineteenth-century ordinary Americans understood pregnancy, and the way in which they did so was by using the range of senses that I just sort of described: smell, taste, sound. Uh, so I didn't mention sound just then, but you know, one of the things that was often mentioned in inquests is, you know, we we'll did. Did somebody hear the baby cry? What noises was the woman who had given birth making or alleged to have alleged to have been given birth making? Uh, And so I wanted the readers to kind of really immerse themselves in those descriptions that I was giving uh, rather than focus on. images. And so that was why I consciously chose to omit visual sources and particularly the kind of visual sources that you might get from medical textbooks. I wanted to shift away from that focus.
1: And I think you did it very masterfully well in your text. It was great. Um, You look at two distinct environments, Connecticut and North Carolina. What made you select those two states?
2: Uh so those there was a couple of reasons for that um first and foremost i guess is I, I i thought um they provided a strong contrast um Connecticut's a smaller state in terms of both population and geography and so i explain in the introduction i explain this in the introduction to the book it also had this sort of fairly distinct legal culture amongst the original 13 colonies and states, uh, and it had a somewhat different trajectory in terms of the development of medicine. Uh, so, for example, what you might call the irregulars were particularly strong in that state for quite some time. Uh, so there was uh, a particular group known as the Thomsonians, named after a uh, a doctor called uh, Samuel Thompson, that they were particularly strong in that state. But at the same time, they also had a very well-developed regular uh, medical profession because of uh, universities such as Yale, which had uh, medical schools. North Carolina, in contrast, was a bigger state in terms of most of both demographics and geography. And it also had a much larger enslaved population and it abolished slavery much later than Connecticut. Uh, I think Connecticut abolished slavery, I want to say, and it was either 1808 or 1818, I'd have to double check. Uh, And there was far less of an emphasis in North Carolina, on what was known as irregular medicine. Uh, So... Basically, most physicians who practiced in North Carolina sort of followed this traditional path where they went and trained at these mid-Atlantic medical schools and then they would return to southern communities and practice there. And in terms of practical reasons uh, for why I selected these two states, I was living in North Carolina when I did a majority of the research. And so that made it really easy to research there.
1: <laughs> Understandable. Um,
2: Yes, Yeah. Um, And the North Carolina archives are really well organized. And, you know, so it was just perfect. And in terms of Connecticut, I had to travel there, but their archives were centrally located, which meant that my research trips were fairly straightforward. Initially, when I started this project, I wanted to include a sort of Midwestern uh, site. And I tried to include Illinois, but that ended up being really challenging because Illinois has, I think, about eight different archival sites spread throughout the state. And the archives, um, at, w- within those archives, the records really fragmentary and incomplete. And so I just kind of gave up in the end. It, it, was, it was really difficult.
1: That would seem like it would sound like, but the book that you created is fabulous, I must say. So Connecticut and North Carolina, they work very well. And then you also bring in points of contrast, too. So um, you get like a nice context as to what's going on with 19th century um, women. Now, in your book, you mentioned four key terms that readers should understand, knowledge, law, medicine, and property. Can you kind of explain what each of those are and how are they interrelated?
2: So that's kind of a huge question, <laughs> um, and I probably say it's um, you know it's easier. Or I recommend that 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 folks who are really interested in kind of digging down into how I use those terms uh, go and read um, the the book. Or at least if they're looking for a more coherent answer, if um, than the one I'm able to give right now. I think the main point I was trying to make with those four terms is that as you know, first of all, they are interrelated, but also what's really important in the 19th century is that the meanings of those four terms are very fluid so that they're very much in flux. So uh, affixing particular definitions to them at any point in time was often difficult to do. Uh, And by the end of the 19th century or the early 20th century, ideas and meanings related to those ideas are a lot more inflexible and rich, a lot more inflexible and rigid. And so that's really the key point I wanted to make is that there's a shift from a fluidity and plurality of understandings to very fixed and rigid notions about those terms, at least by comparison. And a good example to illustrate that is medicine. Um, and so at the beginning of the 19th century medicine or the field of healing, it's populated by a wide variety of practitioners and those practitioners include, you know, could include enslaved men, free black women, Native Americans, white females, white men. Some of those women may have identified as midwives, while others may have referred to themselves as doctors or even doctresses. That was fairly common with Native Americans, for example. And some physicians, usually white, usually male, trained in medical schools, uh, while others trained in or adopted botanic medicine or Hydro hydropathy, which is kind of a water-based therapy. And so there was a wide range of practitioners from which ordinary everyday people could choose in order to heal them. And often those choices might be restricted by cost, for example, but you know, th- there's this plurality of um, medical practitioners. By the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, that situation or that that kind of landscape has radically transformed. And this gourmet or or smorgasbord of healthcare practitioners, if you like, has disappeared. And the, there's this very narrow focus on privileging the expertise of particular white male physicians trained in specific medical schools, and also um, on prioritizing their knowledge. So, I mean, getting to like that other term, you know, at least another one of those four terms, knowledge. So, you know, that that idea of you know, medicine having this this kind of plurality of op- options. So there's a plurality of of knowledge available, and that's changed once again uh, by the uh, early early twentieth century. So you're restricted to sort of, you know, choosing one type of knowledge. Uh, and that's the knowledge that's possessed by white male physicians who've been trained in these particular types of medical schools. So, wow. so that's what, that was the kind of transition I was trying to chase.
1: Wow. You know, if you think about it, you know, how much changed over that course of period of time to having this array to being very narrow definitions by the time you get to the 20th century as it emerges. Now, let's go back a little bit to one of those practitioners I want to talk about from the 18th century and the 19th century, uh, midwives. They play a very important role. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that and give us a couple of examples and how their role changes throughout the 19th century?
2: Uh, So midwives are you know midwives are uh, fascinating um as numerous historians have noted you know uh women enslaved and free played important roles as midwives in communities they often attended uh difficult deliveries you know helped women give birth they were privileged by women and men for a long time, in lieu of physicians as experts in childbirth pregnancy, but also more importantly in healing uh, more, more broadly. And I think that's the important thing, right? That midwives didn't just help deliver babies, they helped as healers. And so, for those of us familiar with Laurel Thatch Ulrich's Math Ballad, uh, some of you may be familiar with the way she played this really vital role as a healer in the community writ large, not just, you know. As a deliverer of babies. So how the role of midwives changed uh, over the course of the 19th century is complicated, but the easiest way is to sort of say that their role becomes marginalized as obstetrics and gynecology grows into this white male-dominated field. And as medicine professionalized Uh, Physicians sort of set in place these kind of gatekeeping functions that limit the role and significance of midwives within local communities. In terms of the kind of examples of different midwives um, who I focus on, particularly in in the early stages, uh, one example that I use is from, I want to say, sort of. The early 19th century, um, 1811, I think her name is, uh, it's either Rebecca or Judah Hall. And she's involved in a case in Caswell County in North Carolina. And they suspect a white woman of, you know, having been pregnant and having committed infanticide. And what the midwife does in this case is she, along with another respected white woman in the community, is they kind of shuffle uh, this this suspect, uh, her name's Elizabeth Beaver, out of the room, so away from the jury of inquest, uh, which is a jury that is made up of white men. And so these two women, one of whom is a midwife, and one of whom is a respected uh, member of the community, they go and sort of physically examine her body. They kind of um, squeeze her breasts and they ask her these questions. And the purpose of these midwives in these investigations uh, was to determine if uh, they had, you know, if, if the accused women had delivered babies in these instances. And so so that, that was kind of um, the role they fulfilled.
1: And that changes, that drastically changes as we move throughout the course. By the time we hit to the late 19th into the 20th century, their role has greatly diminished in terms of their importance. And you're also, in your book, you mentioned that there are also free Blacks, enslaved women who also come to the inquest and present testimony as well? Oh,
2: yeah, definitely. Um, so basically, one of the, so the inquests are different forms to criminal cases, uh, so that that's something to keep in mind. An inquest is basically another word for it is simply an inquisition or an examination. So the, 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 the rules of evidence that apply in criminal cases that prohibit um, African Americans and enslaved people from testifying against whites don't apply in relation to inquests. And I'm certainly not the first historian to know this. And so at an inquest, anyone who has knowledge of the events that have occurred uh, has the authority to testify, uh, and so it doesn't matter if that person is enslaved. It doesn't matter if they're free black. It doesn't matter if they're a child. So, uh, in, in, you know, in some cases, there are young children who are able to, you know, speak a, about what they've seen adult women doing. Uh, all of those witnesses are able to provide evidence or testify in the form of, a, of an inquest because an inquest happens pretty much the, the day that a dead body is discovered. Uh, so a, a, a corpse is found in a field then everybody, you know, uh, as I say, you know, the, fo- the farmers down their tools and they gather right where that body's lying uh, or they move the body to the nearest tavern and they, you know, they, they they sort of hold the inquest there. And this is something that the entire community goes to. Uh, so it, it, it's a community event because everybody in the community is invested in finding out what happened.
1: Wow, it's just so amazing thinking about that now as we live in 2022 and you think about, okay, this is, that you know, it was really, it was a very very important event that happened in the community that brought in all the players and as you mentioned the children you could have siblings or even let's say a potential um, person's child would have to you know provide information as to what they saw Um, so and that's so amazing that that and you do it masterfully how that has shifted by the time you're getting closer to the 20th century, how much of that has changed in so many ways. And that kind of brings me back to two very important individuals. And as you were saying, when you wrote this book, you had no idea that events would happen in 2021 20, to 22, and now going into 23, the Beck brothers. Um, and for both of yeah. the audience who do not know who they are, they actually, one brother actually provide a very, very useful distinction that is still with us today um, as we talk about this notion of abortion versus infant murder distinction. Can you speak a little bit about that, Professor Turner?
2: Okay. So this is um, the Beck brothers. Uh, uh, So who are the Beck brothers? Uh, The the two men, John and Theodoric Beck, Theodoric is the older one, John is the younger one, and they're hugely important in 19th century medicine in terms of shaping this field uh, known as medico legal jurisprudence. And John Beck in particular, he publishes a chapter in a larger treatise that um, his older brother authors that relates to abortion and infanticide. So the broader text is known as Elements of Medical Jurisprudence, and it's, I think, initially published in 1823, and it goes through numerous and numerous and numerous editions, and it's circulated widely throughout um, the United States. But even more importantly, it extends, or its influence extends beyond the United States. I mean, it's well known in uh, European circles as well. (laughs) And uh, John Beck contributes to it, this chapter on uh, abortion and infanticide, because that's what he did his research on at medical school. He wrote his dissertation about this topic. And why this is important is because if you look at the layout of this document, um, what you see is that of, you know, of, of this dissertation, a About 90 pages are devoted to infanticide and 10 pages are devoted to abortion. And, you know, John Beck didn't think this was terribly important in the whole scheme of things. So as a physician in in the early sort of 1820s, abortion is not something with which he or other physicians were necessarily greatly concerned. They're far more concerned with questions of, well, how, how do you prove infanticide? And then of the section that's related to infanticide, most of that is related to well, how do you prove if the child was born dead or not? So or so or sorry, how do you prove if 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 the fetus was born you know alive or not? How do you prove if it if it actually drew breath? Um, and so once again, what I found important about this dissertation is the lack of interest if you like in women's bodies they were far more concerned with the uh, with, with with the corpse uh, and so that's a big distinction between events today I think uh, I mean today that they're still kind of asking those same questions but there seems to be a lot more focus if you like and about or with regulating women's bodies um, whereas, back in the 1820s, far less of a focus on that. And this is consistent with what it was like at inquests. Um, If doctors did attend inquests, which they did uh, at the invitation of the jury of inquest, they weren't there to look at women's bodies. I mean, that's what midwives did. Doctors were there to look at the corpse of, of the infant and to make sort of decisions about that.
1: Wow. And, you know, and going off of what you just said, we're talking pre-Civil War because this does change over time. But you have the lawyers versus the doctors in the court system. And you're trying to and it plays out very interestingly because you've got kind of like this power play going on between the two entities. Um, as to who has more in the courtroom. Can you speak a little bit about that, how that happens pre-Civil War? And then we'll get into a little bit later on how that changes by the time we get to the end of the 19th century. Sure.
2: Um, well, what I would actually say is it's possibly even, I would probably really tease it out a little more than that, and say that what the real the real battle is prior to the Civil War is the. Uh, Physicians are really kind of battling other healers. So they're battling with the authority of midwives, for example. Uh, And so because physicians are circulating in this universe prior to the Civil War, where there's a range of healers available to people and midwives are held in such high authority and such high esteem, they lack credibility in the courtroom. OK, and so midwives, for example, their word may be more valued by lawyers than uh, than that um, of a physician. Um, and so, yeah, so 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 women hold greater authority than men uh, in in those those environments, because they know more uh, about pregnancy and childbirth. And so this is the problem that physicians uh, face in this pre-Civil War
0: period. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: Wow. So it was that during this period, as we're seeing that women possess, or at least the appearance, given their experience during this time, because you don't have this medical profession that's established, women's knowledge oftentimes trumped in many cases the medical practitioners knowledge say a doctor during this period especially in an inquest early on
2: uh yeah definitely um and that that was definitely the case so women women were considered the experts and so yeah they they could easily speak out and sort of say well yeah, you know, we're we're the ones that or our opinion is that you know either she has or she has not given birth to a child, and or the baby was or was not born dead. So physicians were consulted, but they were not considered um, experts, and so that will change um, over over time.
1: Right, and this is also as I'm thinking as you're saying that this is related to. Um, who has access to the women's bodies, especially during this time? Because as you mentioned, the doctors, they're more interested in the corpse, whereas the midwives, they're the ones who are looking at the women's bodies during this
0: period.
2: Yes, though um, I think this is something that you and I discussed prior to the interview. Um, this is complicated by race. Uh, yes. So, yeah, so that, that's 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 definitely complicated by race. <laughs> So the main thing to sort of keep in mind uh, during this period, this sort of pre-Civil War period, is that in terms of white women's bodies, it's mostly women um, who have access to those bodies. Though wealthier women are beginning to invite doctors Um, professionally trained physicians uh, into their birthing rooms if they think those doctors can help and that's happening or more likely to be happening in urban areas uh, you know in places like philadelphia where doctors are more common Uh, so so that's beginning to change but but i mean that environment there is you know where women have the power to choose to invite men into the birthing room. Um, But in the kind of cases I look at where women usually do not have much choice, um, white women are being inspected by by white midwives usually. In the case of um, African-American women, it varies. Uh, Sometimes they're examined by... Enslaved midwives or free Black midwives, uh, sometimes by white physicians. It really depends upon the owner uh, and and or what 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 the court system or what the local community really wants to do. Um, but yes, so it's definitely complicated by race and certainly for enslaved women, they have no choice about who looks at their body. Um, free Black women. <laughs> Free black women, usually it's other black women. uh, uh, Usually not so much white physicians.
1: Right. Now... We are talking about pre-Civil War America during this period, and this kind of goes back to what inspired you, inspired this whole journey for you coming to the United States. The case of uh, Margaret Garner, who who inspired Toni Morrison's Beloved, that kind of started your own inquest. Can you tell us a little bit how that has been used by both anti-slavery advocates and pro-slavery advocates? You have this I want to say this mythos that's been created around that image um, during the 19th century.
2: Uh, sure, sure. And I mean, it's, you know, of, of the two images I do actually use in the book, um, one of them is of, of this very powerful image of Mark Regano precisely because it kind of frames a lot of what we think about infanticide um, in the 19th century. And so both the abolitionist movement, so that's the anti-slavery movement and the pro-slavery movement, use the rhetoric of infanticide to try and advance their causes. And so for those of you who, or those listeners who are not familiar with the story of Margaret Garner, um, she was an enslaved woman in 1856. She escaped from slavery in Kentucky to Ohio And she killed one child and attempted to slit the throat of another. I I think if memory serves, that's I've kind of got the details right there.
1: Yes, you do. You do. Okay,
2: good. Thank you, (laughs) Katrina. I was like, I think, I think I've got them all. I've got them all right there. Um, and so basically, you know, the, Argument that abolitionists made was, you know, that they took this case and they sort of said, "Oh, you know, this this highlights perfectly the, the tragedy of slavery um, that this enslaved mother would rather kill her child or children than have them grow up in slavery," and it proved, and I use that word in quotation marks, um, you know, what they had been what abolitionists, many, you know, most of whom were white had been trying to say all along. Um, And so within this kind of framework or within this argument, abolitionists characterized slavery as a disease that was infecting the nation, and infanticide was just one of the many manifestations of that disease. And the case of Margaret Garner, following that logic, proved um, that... Infanticide was a disease. And so once slavery had been rooted out, the idea was that then infanticide would disappear. Uh, and so, whatever their intention was, I mean, you know, obviously this argument served useful purposes in terms of um, sort of, you know, try, trying to say, you know, th- slavery is bad, you know, th- th- this, this is one of the this is kind of the things that will prompt enslaved mothers to do. It also sets in motion a sort of complicated and damaging series of ideas that tends to that tended to racialize infanticide um, and that would persist long after the Civil War. Now, at the same time that anti-slavery advocates uh, making those arguments pro-slavery supporters were arguing that infanticide was widespread, that it wasn't related to slavery, um, and that it was a disease of capitalism. Uh, And so they argued that slavery, uh, because it kept, you know, in their view, um, in their view, I want to emphasize enslaved people kind of well-fed and housed. It actually limited infanticide. That there would be more infanticide um, if, if not for, um, if, if, if not for, uh, you know, the benefits, the so-called benefits of slavery. And so this argument too would prove problematic because it was um, setting up a dynamic that pro-slavery supporters could and did use after um, emancipation, so or you know freedom, to demonstrate exactly why, in their minds, African Americans were not um, worthy of freedom. And so I'm happy to talk more about those those ideas, but they do play out. They kind of set these arguments up without perhaps realizing they're setting them up. And then, yeah, they they play out. um, And
1: and I have to say, Professor Turner, some of them unfortunately still persist today, Um, which, you know, and it, and it, wasn't I think, on the abolition part. It wasn't their intent to do this, and I know from my own research, the idea and the mythos around Margaret Garner. It went international during the 19th century, but yes. as you were saying, as freedom changed things post Civil War, ideas about blackness and motherhood are largely influenced by those images. So, can you speak to how this idea? after emancipation this idea about how infanticide in some ways became tied to the former enslaved population these notions of blackness and what that meant and how that's ideas about black mothers during this time that were used post-emancipation
2: um so sure so what So both camps have basically, and by both camps, I mean the sort of abolitionists and the pro-slavery people, um, they they have sort of established this pre-existing rhetoric prior to the Civil War that linked race to infanticide. And so when slavery is eliminated, this rhetoric kind of transforms and sort of simply slips into place. Uh, So for anti-slavery activists, what happens all of a sudden is that it wasn't that infanticide was a disease or a product of slavery. It's like, oh, well, actually, infanticide was a product of blackness. Um, you know, so slavery's gone, but they, they now just connect it um, to, to to blackness um, and particularly to mothering. And there's some particularly problematic literature that they circle, uh, so circulate that kind of elaborates on these points where they they sort of talk about mothering you know they kind of give African- American you know really African newly freed African- American mothers for example sort of um, lessons in, in in mothering and and focus on sort of cleanliness and ideas about this you know all of which kind of reinforce ideas that African- American mothers are bad mothers, um, and have to be taught to be good mothers, uh, now that they're free. Now, these ideas dovetail with pro-slavery arguments that, you know, absent slavery, black mothers would prove incapable of looking after their children, um, which is what, you know, pro-slavery supporters have believed, um, all along. And so these arguments kind of coalesce during emancipation. Uh, and they make it very difficult, um, for, for, for black mothers, uh, who, uh, you know, who had, who had, who are trying to survive in a challenging environment, uh, after slavery, you know, in terms of finding jobs, uh, finding jobs, keeping their families together. And at the same time, they're trying to exist in an environment where, people around the nation, white people around the nation are basically saying, well, you're just bad mothers.
1: Right. And you're starting to see this play out in the court system as well, because you've got this differentiation that you mentioned of how black and white women's crimes are viewed, both who've committed infanticide during this period. And this also dovetails into punishment and who gets punished and who does not. And all of this is occurring right as after emancipation, all of this is happening. Definitely.
2: Um, Definitely see it occurring, um, sort of playing out in the the court system. There's a changing nature of punishments um, for a whole series of reasons. Um, And, Basically, I mean, the short version is that black women generally serve longer sentences, generally found themselves serving longer sentences during this period um, than white women. Um, And part of, you know, the reasons for this are complicated, but, you know, sort of thinking of a couple of examples, you know, there's, there's a woman, Frances Hood from North Carolina, and she's... Philly late, she's about eighteen eighty, and then another woman, uh, Mary Davis from Connecticut. Both of these are examples of women um, who were charged with um, infanticide or child aban- abandonment, sort of you know child neglect, and in both instances, um, these 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 were African American women. They served lengthy prison terms. Um, Um, which when compared to most white women who were convicted of the the same or similar crimes during this period, um, you know, these sentences um, were much longer than they generally were as well than they would have been prior to the Civil War. And this is in part because there's an increased focus on incarcerating black bodies um, in this era of freedom. And this is particularly um, pronounced in the South.
1: Right? Because it's, and that gets back to that basic question of as to who owns that body, especially now post emancipation when there was quote unquote an owner, but now it's free, but yet it's still not free. And they do not want to give them ownership of their bodies during this time. And I just, it, you know, as I'm thinking about this, as we're talking, you know, there's different excuses, whereas during this time you will have a white woman who's committed infanticide, and I think maybe it's related to class too here, that may be, oh, there's an excuse. She's more of a victim, whereas with the black mother, there's this idea of inherent guilt. There's something wrong with her um, for committing the same crime. You know, you see this starting to play out, especially in the media, especially in the narratives that are going on in the 19th century newspapers as these crimes are being posted and written about, um, which is definitely helping to shape opinion about who should or should not, um, who has guilt and who does not, and who should suffer those punishments during this period.
2: Oh, definitely. I would agree. And I mean, the newspapers are fascinating to read because you will find reports. In fact, I did find reports about um, infanticide committed by a white woman and a black woman on the same page of a newspaper. And, you know, the, the, these women are described in different ways um, or, the, or the crime is described in different ways. Um, so first of all, a, a basic level, white women are never identified as white. <laughs> they're, right. they're, they're, the race is not stated, um, but non-white people, race or non-white women, the race was always stated. Um, and, you know, and their crime was, you know, the kind of adjective that was used was a horrifying crime Uh, you know, sort of disgusting, disgusting crime, Um, whereas a report of infanticide involving a white woman tended to be simply factual, if you like, uh, dead baby discovered in a field. Uh, and so these were the kind of contrasts um, that you would find in terms of uh, newspaper reporting. So one, one type of reporting was intended to horrify and sort of create this image or reinforce this image that black people were in some way something to be frightened of, whereas the other one was sort of to downplay any threat that might have been represented by whiteness.
1: Right. And all of this, all of this, you've got emancipation, you've got this um, ideas about blackness that are circulating during the spirit. All of this is happening at the same time that you're having the professionalization of medicine. So you have yet another layer that's adding into the mix of this picture and this narrative that's being created. And you mentioned this term and you spoke about it a little bit er earlier, um, the regulars, and so you're starting to get the medical um, professionals are becoming, it's definitely becoming a field now at the same time as all of this is um, happening. And this is also going to shape the narrative of what's going on with black and white women during this period.
2: Uh, sure. Um, and so, yeah, you, I mean, it's definitely becoming a, a lot more of a field Um and so there's a lot of debate within the history of medicine and the history of healthcare about the use of sort of these two opposing terms, the regulars versus the irregulars, but it's kind of hard not to fall into the, into using these terms, um, although they're problematic. Um, but basically the regulars were and still are, if you like the physicians who ended up defining what the parameters of medicine should be and in many ways still are today. Um, and so that was, you had to be licensed, you know, you should be a member of the, and by license, I mean licensed with a state medical board, should be a member of the American Medical Association had to attend a certain type of medical school with certain types of training. Uh, and so what will happen in the early 20th century, I don't talk about this in my book, which finishes up about 1880, but in the early 20th century, they basically go ahead um through this particular process and closed down a whole bunch of medical schools for African Americans, for women, um, for Jewish doctors. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, when they talk about particular types of medical schools, you can see you can see how they're sort of narrowly defining that, um, and successfully um, restricted sort of surgical privileges in hospitals to people who meet these conditions. Um, And so these are the kind of physicians that they're defining as the regulars. And the reason that they're doing this is they're making it more and more difficult for the irregulars. So those who don't meet those conditions to practice medicine. And so this is all happening, um, at that time. What, what they're also doing in concert with this, uh, is basically more vigorously prosecuting people um, who represent themselves as physicians or who represent themselves as physicians but don't meet these parameters. Uh, And so they begin to do that as well. And so they're becoming really clear about sort of defining what this this professional, what a professional physician looks like.
1: Right. And women are now some of them, and this is, they're shifted into more of the nursing role because it's distinctive, more feminine. Um, and it's also, it's very interesting that even for, and it's kind of in some ways, I would say modeled along with upper-class white women who are starting to seek out male professionals at this time, um, Doctors, they're the ones that they are going to, which is also lessening and lessening the role of women during over the course of the 19th century. They're seeking out more what you would call the regulars to be the ones as their medical practitioners during this period as well.
2: Uh, certainly. So, yes, so I would say that there's sort of this, uh, <laughs> so, so the, is, uh, there, there's a whole lot of complicated processes going on so I would certainly say that um, white middle and upper class women are certainly seeking out uh, sort of physicians th- these those kind of physicians to be there to, to be their doctors. Um and then other women in terms of uh jobs or roles are moving into nursing rather than trying to sort of move into um being doctors. Uh part of the reason that some women are going to doctors uh or these women these these upper class women are, are going to physicians, um is for the kinds of reasons that um, historian, Shannon Willicone talks about in her book about miscarriages, they hope that these physicians, for example, can help them with things like um, miscarriages and the, the suffering a kind of grief over that. So those are the kind of reasons that those women choose to go to those kind of doctors. But uh, for the kind of women, once again, that I write about, for whom there's a lot less choice, um, this kind of professionalization is problematic. Um, they don't really have uh, so much choice. They find themselves having having to be examined uh, by uh, white th- these white male medical doctors, for example.
1: Wow. And what's interesting is it's no longer... By the time we get to the end of your book, sadly, it's no longer just their bodies that they want to control. At this time, they're also starting to delve more more into their mental capacities, and that's also tied to race during this period. Um, so can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so it's
2: So what I would say is um yeah, because men are active, you know, the medical profession, which is by now sort of dominated by men, is actively working to restrict female access to that medical profession. Um, one of the things that they're doing is sort of saying, well, women don't really have the mental capacity to practice as physicians. And in part, the reason that is because they you know they they have a uterus and that prompts them to act in ways that are slightly deranged every month you know this sort of <laughs> hysterical every month um you know so and this makes them less mentally capable of um being a physician uh and so so these are the these are the kind of um, These are the kind of reasons that, that they, they give uh, for excluding women from the practice of medicine.
1: And it's, and it's so interesting that you still kind of somewhat, even though it's definitely to a lesser state now, but you still kind of have this mythos that goes on about this image of what happens to women and their mental capacities. Um, cause you kind of have this idea and I I think about it kind of like the PMS. There's this idea, you know, that if a woman is kind of like over emotional kind of like upset, but you, you kind of are beginning to see these ideas formulate in the latter half of the 19th century, something that we just kind of take for granted now.
2: Yes. But it's also complicated because middle and upper class white women they lean into these ideas for lack of a better term. I don't necessarily like that phrasing, but they deploy those narratives at the same time to try and get out of being responsible in cases of infanticide. So they're able to, um, so the, the, these middle and upper class white women, they're able to say, Oh, well, I was suffering from insanity at the, the, the time of, uh, you know, at the time of childbirth, so that's why I murdered my child. Uh, and so, you know, they will get a, de- a doctor or two to testify on their behalf and say, well, yes, women do suffer from insanity at the, you know, well, what, what they called it was pure insanity at the time of childbirth, and yes, it's highly probable this woman was. And uh, and so, therefore, they're able to, um, you know, they're able to get off if the case goes to trial, but um, African-American women are unable to use that as a defense because um, insanity is in some way related to, or sanity, insanity, it's related to civilization or the level of civilization that is purported to exist in society. And it is assumed that African-Americans are naturally less civilized anyway. And so therefore, the logic goes, they are unable uh, to use, to make the claim that they were insane when they did it. Um, And so they can argue um, that, or arguments that are made on their behalf, is that they, they are less intelligent. Um, and so that might get a reduction in sentence for them. But white women, in contrast, will escape jail time completely. Um, but African-American women still have to serve some sentence. Uh, and so once again, we see race, compl- race and class complicating uh, these kind of, of arguments in these cases.
1: Well, and it's so interesting how it shifts from the late 18th, early 19th century till we get to by the time after after the Civil War, how how much has changed in your book. Now, mm-hmm. what would you say you would want readers to take away from the book? Is there anything in particular that you would want them to take away? No, that's, There's a I mean... lot <laughs> that I did, I could say so. So, um,
2: that's a great question. I should probably ask you what you take away from the book. But
1: um,
2: I, I want to say that the argument I make in the conclusion is that one of the enduring legacies of sort of middle, class, middle and upper class white feminism in the 19th century is that they didn't realize the value of the property um, or the value of what they possessed in terms of knowledge about the female body at the time, at the the beginning of the 19th century. And they became so focused on a different type of property, basically kind of gaining voting rights, uh, owning the kind of property that was owned by wealthy white men, that they overlooked the fact that they were kind of losing control of this knowledge that they already owned or possessed, if you like knowledge of the female body. And so part of the reason I make that point in the conclusion is I wanna encourage readers to rethink historical narratives of progress about women's rights, what rights look like, and uh, to sort of rethink how, how we, you know, what, what, the, what the history of the 19th century might look like if we retell it through, through that different lens.
1: And I will say you did that actually very masterfully in your book. Um, it definitely opened my eyes in many ways as to how, and you're correct, knowledge is power. And women, you know, from the late 18th century into the 19th century, they had quite a bit. Um, and as you mentioned, they did not know how much they possessed at that time, um, as they say hindsight is 2020, but you know, if you could kind of go back in time and see that it would be interesting to say, how would that narrative have shifted um, historically with that information? Um,
2: Thank you. I'm so glad. I'm so, I'm so glad that you um, you were able to take that away from the book because that was really one of the things that I wanted readers to take away.
1: It was great. I will say, I want to say, i want readers to go out and pick up Professor Turner's Proving Prudency, Gender Law and Medical Knowledge in the 19th Century United States. It is a must read, I would say, for undergraduates and graduate students. Um, there's so much that you are able to take away from this book and learn, especially about issues of race and gender in the 19th Century um, during this period. Thank you, Professor Turner for joining me today to share your knowledge um, with us about your amazing book. And I really want readers to go out and grab this book today. It is, I will say, this is a book that you must read to learn more about issues of women, body, um, the medical profession. There is a lot there for everyone. So thank you for joining me, Professor Turner.
2: Well, thank you, Katrina, for that enthusiastic endorsement and huge encouragement uh, for all your readers. This has been uh, great fun, and it's been an enormous pleasure discussing the book with you. And thanks again very much uh, to you and to the listeners uh, and, and to the New Book Network.
1: Thank you, Professor Turner.